you're running late and the bus just won't turn the corner onto your street. Glancing at your watch, you swear up and down, wishing you'd left earlier. Just then, a car pulls up and offers you a ride. Go figure, they're headed your way. But how do you know if it's safe to get in or if you're walking into a killer's trap? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. The University of Illinois is a very large school laid out in the Champaign-Urbana area of central Illinois. And look, at any given time while school is in session, there's like 56,000 undergrad and graduate students actively on campus. And if you want to picture it on a map, the campus is blocked out in quadrants, as in many metropolitan cities, kind of like a grid. Because of its sheer size, the campus is almost a city unto itself. And what this does is it allows buses and vehicles to move around campus, depositing students where they need to be easily and quite efficiently. On the warm afternoon of June 9, 2017, a young woman, graduate student Yingying Zhang, prepares to head out to one of the dozens of bus stops near the graduate studies area of campus. Yingying had already accrued an advanced degree in China and was at the university as a visiting scholar to continue her important research in crop sciences. And look, no better place to do that than smack dab in the middle of the heartland. The 26-year-old's chosen area of study is photosynthesis in soybeans and corn, and this flatland presented her with green fields of those exact crops as far as the eye can see. By June 9, most every campus across the United States has already sent home a majority of students for summer break. U of I is no different. It's fairly empty, open, and the crush of people typical of the school year is nowhere to be found. So Yingying arrives at school in April, on campus only three months by that June. And she has an entire summer ahead of her to get her work done, to finish her doctorate degree and head back to China to live her dream, become a teacher. She's from a small family in Nanping, China. She has just one younger brother, and this is a trip of firsts for Yingying. First time away from home, first time out of China, first trip to the United States. To say that she's excited to live her dream of studying her passion in the States and getting her doctorate would be an understatement to just how much this particular trip means to her. But even more excitement awaits Yingying in China, She was also engaged to marry her longtime boyfriend that coming October. You know, it it seemed that her entire life was in front of her, but also clearly she set on a track of success and happiness. But unfortunately for Yingying, that was just not to be. And I just want to say here on crossing the line, I like to share stories we can learn something from, stories that tell us a bit more about who we are and why we do what we do. And in learning that, maybe spreading a bit of awareness and knowledge about the sociopaths and psychopaths walking among us. Look, they are out there lurking, weaving in and out of our lives with or without our knowledge, looking to take advantage of a situation or person. Yeah, I can definitely say there have been a few in the apartment complex I live in here in L.A., but... uh... (laughs) That's my producer, Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hi there, Phelps. And I do not doubt that within any decent-sized apartment complex, there are a few sociopaths. Now, psychopaths Mm. may be a bit rare, but sociopaths are all around us. One of the key differences between the two are this. Socios have a conscience, albeit a weak, twisted one, but one they respond to and one that they hear. Whereas psychopaths just do not have a conscience at all. One rule I like to go by is this, hot head, cold heart. So the sociopath would be the hot-headed person who flips out and does really bad, dark things. While the psychopath would never flip out, 
but still does really bad, dark things. Of course, I could spend an hour on the topic, but let's leave it there. And I think when you get to the end of this episode, you'll know we're dealing with, well, I'll let you decide. By June, Yingying is looking to change her living arrangements. She has a meeting set up that day, June 9th, with a man named Rontres Stone, the marketing manager for another apartment complex on campus. I mean, anytime there's a meeting, we know something bad is going to happen. Kind of gives me the willies. You're not far off base there. Yingying hoped to save some money and potentially get a roommate. Living alone since her arrival was getting kind of old and expensive. And with most students gone for summer, it was even lonelier. So around 1.30 p.m. that day, Yingying texts Rontrez and tells him she's running late. She'd be there around 2.10. She's already on the move from her apartment across campus when she sends him the message. Without a car, Yingying has to rely on the bus to get her to the intersection of Springfield and Matthews streets. There, she will wait for a connecting bus to her destination, one north, to meet Rontrez Stone and with any luck, get the apartment she wants. Getting off the bus at Springfield and Matthews, Yingying doesn't realize she's standing on the wrong side of the street. So when her connecting bus pulls up on the opposite side of the roadway and she realizes it, she darts across the intersection, but she's just too late. She misses her connecting bus. Video surveillance even shows Yingying running toward the bus as it takes off down the block. As Yingying is running in one direction, a black Saturn Astra passes her, heading in the opposite direction. Yingying doesn't notice the car and keeps on running, hoping to catch the bus at the next stop, which she assumes is on the next block. As she approaches that next corner, the same black vehicle approaches, slows down, and pulls over directly where she is standing in the nearly deserted campus. The driver of the Astra, a guy with dark hair, about six foot four inches tall, 200 pounds, rolls the window down and explains to Yingying that he is an undercover police officer working the area. Some conversation takes place. Yingying is leaning into the passenger side window, talking to him. He offers Yingying a ride to One North, the same way he says he is going. Yingying knows she's already late. People in the Midwest are friendly and helpful. You can just ask. Catherine Law that, and she'll tell you that every day, right? Am I right? Yeah, this is my neck of the woods. People are very friendly. They're clearly willing to wait more than 40 minutes at a bar to, you know, have a potential roommate show up. (laughs) And Yingying had noticed this since she'd been on campus. But even so, she hesitates, then assures herself there's nothing to be afraid of. After all, the guy's a cop. Right. And so she opens the passenger side door of the Astra and gets in. The car takes off. By about 2.45 p.m., marketing manager Ron Trestone is growing concerned as he notices Yingying hasn't shown up yet. Because they had been in communication several times that afternoon and he knew Yingying was on her way, he texts her again and then again, but he gets no response. By that evening... Friends of Yingying's are becoming increasingly worried. Nobody has heard from her. This is very much unlike her. Yingying normally texted friends right back. She told them what she was doing, told them where she was. She was good about that. By 9.30 p.m. that evening, one of her professors, seriously worried something has happened to the young, gifted student, calls campus police to report her missing. And this really shows that this is truly a city unto itself. Like U of I is massive. They've got their own police department. They've got their own bus system. Yeah. So this is a Chinese student here for the summer, now missing in the United States. And her friends and her professor are immediately suspicious that something not only big, but bad has happened. Right. So let's take a brief break there right back and please if you haven't already subscribe to the show and give us a review five stars of course
Ying Ying Zhang is a slight woman, just about 100 pounds, 5 feet 4 inches tall, half the size of the man inside the Saturn Astra who presented himself as an undercover police officer and convinced her to take the ride he was offering. Police grab all of the security footage from around campus where she might have been, and they can see that the car she gets into, without a doubt, is a black Saturn Astra. That's a big lead, let me tell you. As an investigator, myself, etc., that's that's major. You've got the car. The night passes. Nobody hears from Ying Ying. Her parents in China are notified about her disappearance, and they begin making plans to come over to America. Within days, the FBI is called in as the case appears to be a kidnapping. A Chinese student in America for the first time is missing. Everything about it feels wrong. It could easily cause an international scandal and sour things between countries whose relations are already often fraught with tension. The story begins to get legs in the media. Students still on campus gather and discuss putting together search parties to look for the young student. The video of Ying Ying stepping into that Astra is just haunting. And you can Google it and you can see it. The fact that the car is an Astra, however, is a huge plus. At the time, there were only 18 of these exact cars, color, make, model, year, in the general area, which is like a shortcut for law enforcement. Statewide, hundreds of them exist, but in Champaign-Urbana, less than 20. I I do have to say, uh, and this has caused in my household a little bit of marital strife, Phelps, but as a person who's native to Illinois, I have always said Urbana-Champaign and was told by my husband that I was incorrect. I then investigated with so many people that I know. It is called the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So apparently, I've been right all along and everyone else is wrong. (laughs) Well, listeners will let us know which, which, (laughs) which they prefer, I am sure. Yes, exactly. And I have no skin in this game. And I don't mean that in a silence of the lambs way. I mean that in <laughs> in a normal way. Yes. Well, so did they ever check to see if Rontrez Stone had any connection to this disappearance? I mean, I'm sure they checked that out. He's the obvious guy you go to. I mean, she was on her way to see him. And he's the one who really sounds the alarm first. So he's definitely the number one suspect. And as far as we know, he didn't have access to a black Astra. But then the question comes up, who did? Mm-hmm. Those 18 Saturn Astras were the only place for this investigation to begin, along with the video surveillance. Investigators need to speak to this car owner, likely the last person to see and talk to Ying Ying. Or could it be that the driver picked her up and dropped her off somewhere? In this type of investigation, point A leads to point B until you find an answer. It is very hard to go missing today in a camera-laden, heavily populated area like a university without law enforcement figuring out what happened. Now, in this CCTV video of her being picked up, it's clear that a hubcap on the Saturn Astra is busted up. That's important. It marks that specific black Astra with a fingerprint, per se, which is a bit of luck because they could not get a clear license plate number from the CCTV. So they start knocking on the doors of those 18 Astra owners. As a detective arrives at one particular location close to campus, he notices that the car has the same damage to the hubcap as they had recognized in the video, which tips them off to a witness for one, but also perhaps a suspect, a very good suspect, in fact. So now I want to go to a clip, and I want you all to listen to this. I'm going to apologize ahead of time because I know that you spoke with my colleague, Joel. Um, I've, I've briefly been able to talk to him. We've been kind of running all over the state. Um, so if you can kind of give me a, a recap of, of what you told him, I would, I would appreciate it. Our investigation, as I'm sure Joel probably told you, is the disappearance of this woman, uh, this young lady. And, uh, the most viable tip that we had referred to a black Saturn Astra. So uh, that's why he came and talked to you yeah. the other day. 
Do you remember what you told him? And I'm not going to hold you to it if there are certain details yeah. you forget. Uh, so they came, they were just checking out all of the Saturn Astros in the area. Mm -hmm. I know it's a pretty rare car, so probably a short list. Um, yeah. He asked where my wife and I were during, I think it was two or three on Friday. And I mean, I graduated a couple weeks ago, so I'm looking for jobs right now. So, okay. I mean, I was either playing video against my computer or taking an afternoon nap. So, I was unable to purchase an alloy. I looked into certain things to try and see if I could get some kind of info for an alibi. I sent some texts around that time, but none exactly between two and three. That is FBI agent Anthony Manganaro questioning the Astra owner. They rounded up after that observant investigator saw the busted hubcap on the Astra parked near campus. It's now June 15th, six days after Ying Ying has gone missing. The dude's name is Brent Christensen. It's hard to make out in the audio we have, but Brent explains at one point when the officers ask why he was questioned initially and asked to come back in. And he says, I was unable to produce an alibi. That's pretty big. Christensen attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison before transferring to U of I. He was actually part of U of I's doctorate program in physics but dropped out and instead opted for his master's, which he received just weeks before this police interview. Look, super smart here. I mean, if you're studying for your doctorate in physics, there's a lot going on inside that head. He had moved to Champaign-Urbana after meeting and marrying his college sweetheart at the University of Wisconsin. In this interview, Christensen further explains how, when police showed up to check out his Astra, he kindly allowed them to search his apartment and his car. But that was bullshit he was spewing, actually, because they had a warrant to conduct that search. So he's sitting here explaining about that search to these two cops in front of him, and he's bullshitting them. That's not a good thing to do. How nice of you to allow them to search your stuff when they like have permission to. <laughs> I mean, it shows this guy's ego because he thinks he can pull one over on them. Like, yeah, I allowed them to come into my house. These two guys sitting there know they had a search warrant. Yeah. So, you know. This guy, when you look at the video, he's the guy who at a party likes to correct everybody going around being like, um, actually, this is how it is. Like he, you don't, is the worst. He checks some boxes that we're going to mm. get to <laughs> in the later part of the episode. Mm-hmm. Agent Manganero and his colleague, U of I detective Eric Stiverson, both sitting across from Brent Christensen at a small table during his interview, know a few things about Brent at this stage. One is that Brent Christensen, he is their guy. There's no doubt about it. That car in the video and Brent's car are the same vehicle. And secondly, Mr. Smarty Pants is highly intelligent and believes he is smarter than they are. So Agent Manganaro at first appeases that grandiose thinking on Brent's part and plays the interview off as two investigators simply asking questions and searching for information. As an added bonus, both investigators also have information that Brent has been recently feeding his obsession with dark fantasies. He's not only had an interest in physics, but also serial killers, mainly Ted Bundy. And he also has a favorite movie, American Psycho. Just a brutal film about a young Manhattan business professional, an investment banker played by Christian Bale, who has an alternate second life as a very, very violent serial killer. It's a disturbing film. If it's your absolute favorite film and you are being questioned about a missing college student, well, those two things say a lot about who you are. Um, Phelps, I need to take a quick break right here and go delete my Netflix watch history because <laughs> I have to tell you, American Psycho is one of my favorite movies. Um, I probably watch it once a year. Let me repeat. If it's your absolute favorite film and you are being questioned about a missing college student, well- Okay, okay. I'm okay on that front. Those two things will say a lot about you. Not having it in your queue on Netflix. <laughs> You're all good. 
You're all good, Catherine. Oh, thank goodness. One of the other things Brent has been up to most recently is researching serial killers online and on his phone. He also has a fetish for women in bondage and has visited websites focused on abductions and kidnappings. The FBI also just learned that Brent had ordered a six-foot-long duffel bag from Amazon in the months prior to Ying Yang going missing and a second bag just days before she went missing. You have to be kidding me. Your Amazon and history? And you, sh- you should delete all of your order history as well, I would say. Okay. <laughs> okay, I definitely will. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, it's obvious right here that the first thing investigators take from you when they question you and you're a good suspect is your phone and your computer and they start going through it. And when they hit Brent Christensen's phone and computer, they hit just the jackpot, okay, of information. I said at the beginning, psychopaths didn't have consciences. I did not say they were smart. (laughs) And yet this is somewhat untrue because although most serial killers are intellectually stupid, they believe they are smarter than everyone else. So there you go. Brent is just doing Brent. Look, you'll hear me say this from time to time on Crossing the Line simply because it's so important to keep in mind. Murder investigations are not complicated, and there are almost never coincidences when it comes to murder. Brent then admits during the interview that his wife was out of town at the time Ying Ying went missing. Okay, go figure. The guy's alone. College girl gets into his car. College girl missing. He has a fetish for Ted Bundy and duffel bags and all kinds of serial killer shit. Agent Manganero presses Brent during the initial part of the interview about his whereabouts, any texts he might have sent during the period of time in which Ying Ying went missing, or anyone he might have spoken to, anything that can explain where he was at the time Ying Ying got into that Astra. Of course, since they have the CCTV footage, they know this was between 2 and 3 p.m. on June 9th. Okay, so Brent, cough it up. Where were you between 2 and 3 p.m. on June 9th? There are texts around it. Yeah, maybe not. Not exactly between 2 and 3. And that's why I think I was probably lying down and sleeping, just because, like, you know, especially now, I'll typically do stuff in the morning for jobs, apply to a few, Mm -hmm. and, like, you know, I lie down to sleep, wake up, respond. It definitely fits. Okay. Ugh, we all know this guy. He's just so smug and know-it-all and, like, has really bad sneakers on. He is. He sits there with his arms folded, elbows on the table, staring directly into the eyes of the agents. I mean, when he talks, he looks these two guys in the eyes and he's explaining stuff and he's full on. At one time, he even cracks his neck, kind of like a MMA fighter before a match. I, I just found that bizarre, but I understand it for who he is. Mm-hmm. What he's saying there is, come on, boys, let's see what you got on me because I am definitely, definitely smarter than the two of you. And the more I watch this interview, the more I understand because when you look at this guy, you are literally seeing how the mind works of a psychopath. I mean, look, and he's not been diagnosed a psychopath. I am diagnosing him a psychopath, armchair diagnosing. But you see this guy exactly for who he is during this interview. Yeah, I think for this guy, I'm going to go with psychopath instead of sociopath. I think we should have a game, a game show on this. (laughs) And it'd be like today's version of psychopath versus sociopath. (laughs) Let's go. Brent Christensen, psychopath. Exactly. (laughs) These are intuitive and well-prepared investigators, I will say, and they truly pick up on Brent's hubris and smugness and use it to their advantage. I love these two guys. I think it's pretty obvious as we move along here. But what these investigators don't know yet is that Brent already has secrets piling up in his personal life, secrets that lead to increasingly destructive behavior. So beyond a penchant for Ted Bundy, bondage, kidnappings, and old-school type abductions, Brent has also been abusing alcohol and prescription pills. His wife, 
he had found out in the months prior to this had been getting with another guy. After confronting her about the infidelity, both decided to enter into an open marriage. But that didn't last long. Soon his wife decided to leave him altogether because he is drinking and using drugs too much and is just, well, a twisted asshole. Here's something really interesting. Brent went to the university counselor's office for help in order to deal with all of this. Let's just say his psychopathic quirks, okay? Well, psychopaths love to hear themselves talk, so that kind of makes sense. And they love to sit and spew their nonsense to somebody else. So he goes to this counselor's office. I just, I just think this is just a great part of this guy. During the intake process, he admits to the counselor he has been thinking about harming others in the worst ways. He also talks about how attractive Ted Bundy is and how far down the path he has gone in thinking about abducting someone. He admits all of this to his therapist. I mean, it's maybe not the smartest thing to do if you're looking to be better than Ted Bundy, but isn't this something that, you know, therapists are supposed to report if you're a danger to yourself or others? Right now, he's heading down that road with her, Mm -hmm. but he hasn't got there yet. Mm -hmm. And maybe he's like speaking in this hypothetical language of like, I'm kind of far down that path. And But nonetheless, I mean, Mm -hmm. look what he says to her. Yeah, it's creepy. Then again, there is Brent doing Brent, trying to show this therapist how badass he is, how smart he is, right? Mm-hmm. By this point, Brent had met a woman on a dating app who was also into bondage. She had become his submissive. He purchased bed restraints, a gag, and a blindfold. In May, the texts he is sending to his new girlfriend become extremely dark, highlighting his increasing sense of paranoia. Brent talks about how he will never, quote, fade into nothingness, end quote. That being a nobody is, quote, not an option for Brent. Quote, I would rather destroy humanity than let that happen, end quote. This is what he tells his girlfriend. He wants to be remembered, he says. Doesn't matter if it's for good or bad, but he will not be forgotten. As someone who's lived in L.A. for the last decade, I can say there's nothing more pathetic than someone who's like, I need to be known. I need to be famous. That's Brent. Brent is just checking every box on the sociopath, psychopath checklist. That's what he's doing Mm -hmm. with all this. Mm -hmm. With word that his wife is leaving town on June 8th, and look, she's still living with Brent, but she's been taking off with her boyfriend for a weekend here and there and going out with him. With her gone... He decides to act. He ordered that second duffel bag. This one is colossal size, a super tough heavyweight bag. Yeah, so it's big enough for a body, in other words. It strikes me as a listener that, like, if someone's out there and they have this sort of twisted fantasy, they're planning and plotting, and you just are going about your day, happen to walk into his path, I mean, you're done for. If you are his chosen victim profile, Part of his fantasy, you're as good as dead. Brent put a ton of importance on the bag. In fact, he actually obsessed over the bag online on a site called FetLife, a BDSM forum. He went on about how vital the bag was to his fantasy of abducting, raping, and kidnapping someone. His fantasy included binding, gagging, and then placing the woman in the bag before putting the bag into the trunk of his car. Here is Brent writing a script for what he's going to do. Serial killers are fantasy driven. It's all about that image loop playing inside their minds of what they're going to do to their victim. It begins to manifest in the mind. They obsess over it for months, even years. Maybe go online to watch something similar, get off on that. But then, then, then it overpowers them and they have to act on it. Let's get back to the interview as Agent Manganaro asked Brent if he has any questions for them. Um, why am I under suspicion? Is it just my car or is there anything else? Uh, I mean, that's, you know, a large portion. Uh, I mean, it is a very unique car. Like I said, our search warrant is, is just for the car. Yeah. So we can, yeah. you know, look into it. We can see what we can find and of course you could also turn around and exonerate you completely i mean talking about a very rare car 
And so this was really smart. Right after he says that, the investigator does a bait and switch and changes the subject and goes, so how did you meet your wife? And Brent takes the bait. It's great, isn't it? I mean, these two guys together, I've never seen two guys from different agencies work as well together as these two guys. Right. It's one guy from the college police and one from the FBI, right? Yep. It's wild. And they are like a fine-tuned machine with this guy. Uh Uh-huh. The two investigators, they work expertly together and know exactly what they are doing. Now, the second investigator sitting at the table, University of Illinois Detective Eric Stiverson, he works for the Detectives Bureau at the university. I love this guy. He's been sitting, sizing Brent up, staring at Brent, hand on his chin, serious ass look on his face. He's a bigger guy, intimidating. Manganaro was doing the questioning up to this point. But he looks at Stiverson here and he says, do you have any questions for Brent? Um, yes. As a matter of fact, he does. Yeah. The, uh, when we were talking about Friday, uh, the day in question on the ninth, can you remember, you, you said you played video games all day on Friday? This clearly rattles Brent's cage, even startles him. And the question is designed to do exactly that. Now, listen to Brent's response. Literally all day. Um, at the moment, not really hanging out with too many people or talking to too many people. Um, my wife and the girl I talked to, um, she was busy. My wife was out of town, so it's like, well, I'm alone today. So, uh, yeah. Just you didn't, you didn't just, do a cruise in campus or anything? I did on Saturday. But, I mean, getting a little stir-crazy just decided to go out for a drive on Saturday. But Did you go out to eat or anything? Go any places? No, I didn't go out to eat. There's a long moment of silence between them next, which investigators in this situation pray for. And then my guy, Stiverson, he gets into it, which again, I love his delivery. And that delivery during interviews such as these becomes key. This is not simply good cop, bad cop, which we all know used to work well, but not so much anymore. This style of interviewing is different and far more effective. I really like it when investigators evolve and change tactics in the middle of an interview. It's brilliant, actually. Look, you know that we didn't bring you all the way up here to talk about video games and what you had for lunch that day. Yep. Why do you think that we brought you up here? Because the car I own was seen picking up a girl that's missing. Yeah. Yeah. So who was driving that car other than you on on Friday night? On Friday the ninth. It's it, you're driving your car on the ninth. Does anybody else have access to that car? No one has access to that car. Okay. Right there, they got him. Spot on. And you can literally see the color drain from Brent's face and his entire body language begins to change. Uh huh. Let's take another short break and when we return, you'll hear what happens when Brent gets backed into a corner and does something that surprises me. You don't want to miss this. As a true crime fan, as well as someone involved in the day-to-day of it, I have to admit, I get a rush out of a scumbag, trembling, scared while within the interview process. And this is a rare occurrence because generally speaking, these guys, they don't give a shit and they can compose themselves pretty well during these types of interviews. Not having a conscience allows you to become a great liar and an actor. They hardly ever crack. And whether or not Brent is a clinically diagnosed psychopath or just some self-important dirtbag with twisted fantasies, he's really not that smart when push comes to shove. He's not that charming or that devious. And the guy begins to cave at the first indication of accusatory questions. He has a hard time composing himself when faced with those hard-hitting alibi questions. Like I said before the break, Brent surprises me in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's almost like he hasn't evolved yet into that classic pathological liar 
just no one has access to my car but me and my wife. And we were the only ones with keys and she was out of town. Like he's giving them all the firepower they need. He definitely is. Let's go back to my guy, Stiverson, doing the questioning and hear that cracking in Brent's voice. I love it. I love it. <laughs> now, let's talk specifically about Friday. You went to school for how long at the U of I? Since 2013. Since 2013. Yeah, so you're very familiar with our campus? Not really. I never really um, talked to anyone. So, so you're kind of a loner? Yeah. And you would have went to Loomis Lab, you said? Yes. You're, okay. Yeah, that was my mentors. Okay. That made cash films. The... Uh, but specifically on that day... Okay. When you, you originally told the agents that came to your apartment that you just played video games all day long. And you didn't leave the apartment. Yeah. But it's fair to say that we know that that's not true. Correct? Why would I lie? I mean... I, maybe there's some misunderstanding why, why we're here. Because like I said, we're, we're, we are looking for a needle in a haystack. Yeah. But my point is, you're making it sound like we're just randomly came across your vehicle. I have so so so. What would have happened that day that brings us to you? Brent by now is aware that they are onto him. He's backtracking, on the ropes. He knows for certain that they know. Okay, he sits there and he knows. Uh oh. They know I did this. The other investigator, the FBI agent who started the interview, then pipes in, but with a clearly different tone and direction now. Believe me when I say that the full weight force of the FBI is going to descend on that vehicle. Okay. And all that entails. Okay. Right now, my primary concern and why I've been out till midnight, and these guys have been out till midnight every single night, is we're trying to find this girl. It's raining outside, it's nasty. She's a foreign student, has only been here for a few weeks. I want to find her. I'm asking for help. I know. I... I mean... I've got her getting into your car. I need to know why. Brent, I need, I need to know why she's getting into your car, and I need to know where she went. If we can help her, we need to know now, because we need, we need to move on from this. It, it's been like six days now. I don't understand. Sorry. My guy then explains to Brent that the university has access all over campus to CCTV, and they can look at any street, multiple angles, at buses, inside buses, in every building, all along the streets, and that they know exactly where and when he picked up Ying Ying and where he drove her afterward. Brent's response to that? You didn't see me. My guy says, quote, you've seen what we have allowed you to see. I just think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Put the fear of God in him. Yeah. Here's Brent's reply, and note the moments of silence. Can I see the stuff that you're talking about? Do you think that we brought you up here to show you video? We wanna we wanna understand why you did it. Yeah. We wanna understand why you stopped her to pick her up. Was it to give her a ride? Are you afraid to tell us that you gave her a ride? Maybe you want to make a couple bucks as an Uber driver and she told you I had to go get I had to go sign a lease at One North, and you're like, oh, I know where that's at. I'll drop you off. If you're afraid to tell us that you gave a ride someplace, we can work with you there. But I know that you picked her up. I know you did. I saw you in your shirt, arms fully extended. Where did you drop her off at? She was looking for a ride. She had missed her bus. She told you she was going to one north, so where did you drop her off at? The look on Brent's face is priceless. He looks back and forth at both cops, 
his mouth agape, shrugs his shoulders, then sits back in his chair and looks down at the table. He doesn't have an answer. One of his legs at this point is bouncing a mile a minute underneath the table. Then, after a long, awkward moment of silence and some shallow breathing, he starts shaking. I love it. His head's shaking in a strange way, kind of like a bobblehead. It's like you can actually see his brain breaking. His hands are clasped in front of himself, and he's hard to understand because his voice is cracking so badly. He keeps swallowing, breathing heavily. Listen to him. Maybe I'm getting my days mixed up then. Okay. I thought I'd heard around them Saturday. I did pick a girl up. I don't remember where. Okay. I saw her picture. I don't think it was her, though. Do you remember the girl's name that you picked up? No, she was talking very broken English. Okay. Tell us about what happened. What time of day was that? Early afternoon. I don't really remember. Okay. I was just driving around. Um, I saw a girl, and she was very distressed. Okay. So I stopped my car and looked at her. Okay. I asked her if she needed help. I talked to her for a little bit, not that much. I gave her a short ride. Okay. She freaked out and got out. Okay. That's all it was. Was this when you got on the north side of the railroad tracks on Goodwin? When you went across the university and you drove on north? Did you was... let her out by the hospital or by the railroad tracks? Or where did you let her out at? I don't really remember specifics. Um, was it close to where you picked her up? Yeah, it was relatively close. It was in a residential area. But notice, he still doesn't give it up. He still thinks he's in charge of the game. It's like 12.30 a.m. on June 15th during this part of the interview. And again, that is by design. Get Brent in there late at night. Get him talking. Get him tired. Keep him talking. Remember, they knew that they had their guy before they even brought him in. And for the next several minutes, Brent begins talking in circles about streets and what Ying Ying says to him and where she is going. He says she freaks out and wants to get out of the vehicle. This is all victim blaming, shaming. This, this is that's it's, he's he's heading down that road. So with that, I have to take one more short break, and we'll be right back. But there's another part of this story that becomes vitally important. Something Brent doesn't know that the investigators with him in the room are already very aware of. Investigators know that earlier in the day on June 9th, another young woman was walking around campus when a black Saturn Astra pulled up alongside her. A guy wearing a black t-shirt and aviator sunglasses brandished a badge and asked if she might answer a few questions. She said, sure. He then asks if she'll get into his vehicle and she refuses. Well, If you see anything suspicious, call the police, he replies before speeding off. This girl found the dude so sketchy and didn't believe he was a cop. Rightfully so. She calls campus police to report the incident and then puts out a Facebook post warning how someone is driving around campus impersonating a police officer, so watch out. Unfortunately for Ying Ying, she never saw the post. And I can't help but think, if there was some sort of text alert system in play here, Ying Ying might still be alive today. Yeah. And frankly, if women were taken seriously when it comes to reporting something like, oh, there was like a creepy guy over on this corner trying to get me to get in his car or there's a guy masturbating at me at the mall or whatever the case may be. I mean, we'd have fewer incidents like this. Uh, That's such an important thing to say, Catherine, um, because in this case, it's not taken as serious as it should have been, right? Because mm-hmm. it the girl puts out the Facebook post. Right. It's on us to be able to protect ourselves in so many cases. And, you know, there are some things these days that can help with some of that stuff. Like there's the Citizen app and, um, you know, it'll give you a, an alert if there's something dangerous or strange happening in your area. But it's usually based on things that have already happened. So it's right. a police report has been filed or a 911 call has already gone in or, you know, those types of things. So and there should be some sort of app like Waze, you know, yeah. how it shows you there's a cop up ahead where there's a psychopath up yeah. ahead right <laughs> yes. there. Boom. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's my idea, by the way. 
I was to say, any app creators out there, if you want to get in contact with us, let us know. I will sponsor that app. Great. As the interview progresses, they kind of hit an impasse. Brent is playing the I don't remember card over and over. He keeps lamely shrugging his crossed hands like a little boy in the principal's office. They press him on details. He just cannot recall, he says. The FBI agent presses Brent even further. But then my guy, he cranks it up a notch. We have 600 Chinese students that have volunteered to look for her. What I can tell you is that we will find her. Now, when we find her is up to you. Because you know and we know that she didn't just get out of your car. So we need to know where she is now so that we can move forward from this. But if you maintain that she just got out of the car and walked away, it's very difficult for us to move forward. Were, were you hoping for um, just kind of like a quick tryst with her or see if, you know, trying to, trying to pick her up? I mean, that would have been nice. Uh, gross. My guy, he gives it one last shot. Were you attracted to her at all? Reasonable amount. Well, she's a good-looking girl. Did the thought cross your mind? Yeah, the thought crossed my mind, but I probably haven't with anyone. I mean, maybe she's into that, is my point. And I'm not, I'm not judging you. If she got in your car and she wanted to have go to another location, you guys have a have some fun, roll, roll around, have sex, consensual sex. Something happens. You panic. Is that a possibility? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. So you're telling me you never had sex with her? I never had sex with her. Never penetrated her with your fingers? Any of, any parts of her body? With no. your penis? No. With your fingers? No. Never had sex with Did you kiss her? No. Are you afraid? Are you afraid to tell me if you did? Because it, it seems like you're you're trying to think instead of just answering the question. You're trying to think about three steps forward, well, like where I'm going with it. And I think I've demonstrated enough. I've shared enough with you that you know that I know. That you, you didn't drop her off in that in that neighborhood. You you know that we can follow her phone. Okay. So where did you drop her off at? Where'd you take her, Brent? We need to find Yanging. Brent cracks, but he doesn't break. He holds it together and ends the interview by saying this, I think I've said enough. That surprised me, honestly. I thought he would break here, which tells me he is definitely evolving as a psychopath. But like any common ego-driven narcissist, however, Brent does eventually allow his hubris to get the better of him. So there's a vigil for Ying Ying, not long after that interview with Brent. Brent and his girlfriend attend. But Brent, he just can't keep this to himself. He cannot just fade into obscurity. Remember what he had told his girlfriend that I said earlier? He needs to be known, even if it's for something horrible. During the vigil, Brent sends a text to his girlfriend who was standing next to him as he sends the text. And here's what it says. It was me. She was number 13. She is gone forever. Remember, they're standing at a vigil for Ying Ying. The girlfriend is shocked, of course, and she ultimately contacts law enforcement. Cheers to her. They talk her into wearing a wire in which she gets Brent to admit everything. And one of the things that he admits to on that wire is, I cut her clothes off and just started doing stuff to her. So the wire was recorded on June 29. In the tape of the wire she wore to record Brent, you can hear this rhythmic thumping in the background. 
That's the girlfriend's heartbeat. She's terrified. But she perseveres. Brent says at one point, quote, I knocked her out, but she was stronger than any other victims I've ever had. I tried to choke her to death, but she didn't die. I choked her for 10 minutes. I carried her into my bathtub. I got a bat and I hit her on the head as hard as I could and I broke her head open. I wasn't sure if she was dead, so I had a knife, stabbed her in the neck, and she grabbed for it. The last person I would consider at my level, Brent says, that actually did anything was Ted Bundy. End of quote. I mean, she fought so hard. She fought for her life. She fought this 6'4", 200-pound guy. Yep. For her life. He goes on and on in graphic detail. He raped Ying Ying, of course. Then he butchered her, placed Ying Ying's dismembered body in three separate garbage bags, put them in a dumpster outside his apartment, and disposed of her personal belongings in several different trash cans in and around the Champaign-Urbana area. Brent was charged with kidnapping on June 30th, 2018. On June 24, 2019, two years after Ying Ying Zhang fought for her life, Brent was found guilty. One count of kidnapping resulting in death and two counts of making false statements to FBI agents. Three weeks later, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And look, he wasn't charged with murder because they didn't have a body. Hmm. And that's a hard conviction to make. It's my guess, based on my experience and expertise in talking to serial killers over the past 20 years, that Brent's admission of 13 victims is total bullshit. He's definitely a wannabe all the way. The FBI has, of course, looked into potential additional victims and as of this writing, have not released any news about additional murder victims connected to Brent Christensen. To this day, Ying Ying's body has never been found. I cannot say enough how sorry I am to her family. To lose a loved one is devastating, but to be unable to put her to rest is immeasurably hard. Please join me here next week for a new case. As always, please be safe, be aware. Sources for today's episode come from USA versus Brent Christensen trial transcripts, FBI video interview of Brent Christensen, transcript of Body Wire, June 29th, 2017, and various video news accounts from WTTW, Chicago. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 